Okay, amazing. So it is 11.01 and we're gonna get started. And I'm really excited to start this new chapter, chapter 31. And chapter 31 makes us look at the ideas we've just been learning and say, wait one second, how is that okay? Remember, we started chapter 26 saying that joy is a must. If a person does not have joy in serving Hashem, then they're going to be lazy, they're going to be sluggish, and another side effect of not having joy is falling for temptation. Because if a person is in a happy mood, if they're not in a happy mood, then they're going to seek a quick pick-me-up. So it's, sadness is dangerous. So how is that allowed? So the altar is now showing us the greater picture. Sometimes when we stop in the middle of the sentence, then we didn't get the whole thought. And it reminds me of a story that happened to me like about 10 years ago. We just moved to a new place. I let my five or six-year-old daughter then stay home from school because she was adjusting to the move. She went outside to play. And she comes in and she's out of breath. <gasps> Mommy, a stranger was talking to me. And I'm like so nervous. A stranger was talking to you. From where? From behind the fence. And I can't believe it. I'm shocked. I'm like, what did they say? And she said, they said, hey. Hey, and my mind is racing. They're calling my daughter, hey, hey, five or six-year-old over the fence. And then she continues, stop throwing rocks into our property. <laughs> and then I breathe out. It's a whole different picture. The picture one is <laughs> a stranger is calling her, hey, hey, over the fence. But one second, they're saying, stop throwing rocks over the property. So we're looking at this exercise of sadness and we're saying, one second, sadness could be very dangerous. So let's explore it a little further and the altar is going to explain why this is okay and also how it is helpful. Chapter 31. In chapter 29, the altar Rebbe began to deal with the problem of timtum halev, insensitivity of the heart. He quoted the statement of the Zohar that a body impervious to the light of the soul needs to be crushed. By crushing one's spirit, one crushes the sitra achra of his animal soul, whose arrogance is the cause of timtum halev. So right over there in the beginning of chapter 29, the Alter Rebbe quoted from the Zohar, A log that will not catch fire has to be splintered, and similarly, a body that won't catch the light of the neshama has to be crushed. Of course, bodies are not supposed to be crushed. It means the animal soul, the energy behind the body, the vivifying force, the ego, has to be crushed in order to allow the heart to feel again. In chapters 29 to 30, the Alter Rebbe described various methods, means of arriving at a feeling of contrition. We spoke about some very serious meditations, thinking about how our natural everyday self is so distant from Hashem. We thought about, hey, are all my thoughts, words, and actions only for Hashem? We thought about what are my dreams like? All these things were to bring us to such a place of contrition. And last chapter, we reflected on one's spiritual failings in not waging an adequately strenuous battle against his evil impulse and realizing that one's failure in this area places him on a level lower than that of the lowliest of his fellow Jews, as explained at length in chapter 30. But while these methods may effectively dispel Timtum Halev, they're going to energize our heart again. We won't have a numb heart anymore. There might be a problem. They would seem to have an undesirable side effect, depression. So chapter 31 deals with this problem. Vahine. 
even if dwelling long and deeply into the above-mentioned matters for an hour or two, to be lowly of spirit and contrite of heart leads one to profound depression. Let him not be perturbed. So what's the way of doing this meditation? It is long. That means however long it takes. An hour or two or more. Whatever it takes to actually let this seep into the heart. And then deeply, meaning not a superficial fleeting thought, but actually something that a person makes personal. That will lead to a depression. So that would be a reason to worry. And the Alter Rebbe says, don't worry. Why shouldn't he worry? And he says, True, Atzvah's depression derives from the realm of Klipas Naiga, not of holiness. So here the Alter Rebbe didn't bring up the problem that he brought up in chapter 26. In chapter 26, he told us that the main problem with sadness is that it saps our energy and doesn't allow us to give it our all in battling our dark side and serving Hashem. Here he doesn't address that problem at all. And the reason for it is because that kind of sadness is sadness that's spontaneous sadness. Sadness that controls the person. Sadness that just comes on, captures the person's heart, and makes him lazy and down and depressed. This is not the sadness we're talking about here. The sadness we're talking about here was the prescribed sadness. The planned, scheduled sadness where the person is in control. They came into this with a meditation. They chose a time. They had a settled mind. And they were planning to be sad. In this situation, they don't have to worry about the other side effects of laziness and temptation. Because this is a situation where he's in control. But the altar brings up another problem. What's the problem with sadness? Sadness inherently has a problem. It comes from the klipa. It doesn't come from the side of holiness. For concerning the realm of holiness, it is written... Strength and gladness are in his place. So yes, we are talking about a sadness that was based on holy reasons. A person is thinking about his distance from Hashem. But sadness itself comes from Klipas Naiga. There's a story of a chassid that one night was sitting and studying and all of a sudden he felt the presence of somebody right next to him. He became alarmed, he extinguished the candle and he went to bed. And the next day he told his friends, the craziest thing happened to me. I was sitting, I was studying, and all of a sudden I felt somebody next to me. So I quickly put out the candle and I went to bed. And they said to him, why did you do that? Maybe it was Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. And he said, oh no, that wasn't Eliyahu Hanavi. That fellow was full of sadness. And Elijah the prophet is full of joy. And when I saw this creepy looking fellow full of sadness, I knew he came from the klipa. When we are talking about Hashem's space, what does it say in Divrei Hayamim? Strength and gladness are in his place. The Talmud tells us, There is no sadness before Hashem. And the Talmud quotes this Pasuk. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Hashem's place is a place full of joy. Sadness means... It's not in Hashem's place. And likewise, the divine presence abides only in man's joy. And the same joy is required for the study of halacha. 
So the Talmud tells us that the Shekhinah does not rest on somebody who is sad, downhearted, or lightheaded. It only rests on a person who has simcha shel mitzvah, joy of a mitzvah. And the Talmud tells us a story. Well, actually, the story is from the Navi, but it brings this as an example. The Navi Elisha was being called upon by three kings. And one of those kings was Yehoram, the king of Israel, who was a terrible person and idol worshiper. When Yehoram came to ask of the prophet Elisha, Elisha the prophet looked at him and said, why are you coming to me? He got angry at him. He said, go speak to the prophets of your mother. Speak to the prophets of your father. His parents were idol worshippers. He was an idol worshiper. But he said, I wouldn't even have looked at you if not for the fact that you were with King Yehoshaphat, which was the righteous king of Judah. And out of respect for him, I'm going to answer you. But he couldn't answer him because he was angry. He wasn't in a good mood. So he said, fetch me a musician. Get me someone to play music for me so I can be in a place of joy and the Shekhinah will rest on me. Similarly, after Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, our forefather, was reunited with his son Joseph after 22 years, it says, Vatechi Ruach Yaakov Avihem. And the spirit of their father, Jacob, lived, was revived. Targum Onkelos translate this in Aramaic as Ushras Ruach Nevua Levas Yaakov Avuhain. And the spirit of prophecy rested on their father Jacob. And the Rambam in Shemayna Prakam explains that because all those years when he was sad, the spirit of prophecy couldn't rest on him. So all this proves a point that happiness is of holiness and sadness is not from the realm of holiness. Sadness is from the realm of klipa. So this is a really great reason to be worried. Here we are employing an exercise, a meditation that leads us to sadness. And we were doing it right. We were meditating on holy things, our distance from Hashem. We were doing it in a controlled setting. We chose the time, we had a calm mind, but there's a problem here. It brings sadness, and sadness is of the klipa. In Hashem's space, there is no sadness. In Hashem's space, there's only joy. Okay, here we are, and we're asking a question. What was our meditation like? Our meditation was a holy meditation. Our meditation was about our distance from Hashem. Why? Are we saying that it is from the klipa? So the altar is going to explain. Yes, it is from the klipa. Ella, but she'im ha'atzfus he mimile dishmaya he mipchinas toiv shebenaiga. Any depression then comes from the realm of klipas naiga, except that if the depression is due to spiritual matters arising from one's realization of his spiritual failings, it stems from the good contained in klipas naiga. For as mentioned in chapter one. Klipas Naga contains both good and evil. The evil in Naga is the source of ordinary depression. The positive element in Naga gives rise to spiritually motivated depression. Yet even the element of good contained in Naga is, after all, Klipa. Okay, so let's stop for a moment. Let's look at sadness. All sadness is from Klipa. Even holy sadness or spiritually induced sadness. Why is that? Because... Anytime a person is in a state of sadness, they're in a space of, maybe sometimes subtle, but self-absorption. It becomes about me. Even if they're thinking about how distant I am from Hashem, but there's the I. I am so sad that I'm distant from Hashem. 
if a person is totally in that space of holiness, what is holiness? Holiness is total nullification to the divine. What me? Who me? It's all about Hashem. Even when they're recognizing their distance from Hashem, they don't feel saddened. They feel motivated. But once there's sadness, there's a certain level of self-absorption. Now, if it's a materially induced sadness, God forbid they don't have what they need. They don't have good health. They don't have enough finances. Whatever it is that they're lacking, then it could be that, yes, they have a good reason to be sad, but we, we do understand that there's a certain level of feeling themselves, like I deserve, I should have better, and that's why they're sad. And that would be from the klipa, klipas naiga. Now, klipas naiga is the fourth klipa. I'm going to say it again. In Kabbalah, there's no gray. There's black and white. Either it is sitra de kedusha, the side of holiness, or it's sitra achra, the other side. There's no such thing as neutral. Either it's holy or it's profane. What does the side gray look like? Because there's really no gray. Gray is in the black side. And that is within that which is profane. There are the three klipos that are completely unrectifiable. And then there's that one klipa called klipas naiga that is rectifiable. We can take that which is mundane and make it holy. The word naiga means glowing. This is from the vision of Yechaskel. And he said that there was a storm wind and a great cloud and a flashing fire. And he said, and there was a glow about it. This is klipas naiga. It is that, that klipa that, which isn't good, which is essentially ego-based, but there's some goodness mixed within it and that could be elevated. So when we're talking about ordinary sadness, the ordinary sadness comes from the klipa of klipas naiga. When we're talking about sadness that is induced because of spiritual health problems, distance from Hashem, that is the good within klipas naiga. If it's the regular klipa, then the regular klipa is just thick, coarse ego. But if it is the good within klipas naiga, then while it is indeed klipa, because it's ego-based, nevertheless, the ego is very subtle. There's something of humility there. In this sense, there's a feeling that I am distant from Hashem and I'd like to be closer to Him. It's not about me, essentially, but there's still me in the picture. Okay, so now we understand that even depression that is induced by spiritual problems, in fact, comes from the klipa. Now we can understand why the Al-Rizal wrote what he wrote. What did he write? V'lachain kasav ha'arizal sha'afilu daigais ha'avvainais for this reason, the Arizal writes that even worry over one's sins is appropriate only during confession. The Arizal writes that a person shouldn't be sad over their sins except for specific times, such as confessional prayers or during Tikkun Chatzais. Otherwise, a person should be happy. And what he writes is, his student Rabbi Chaim Vital writes in his name, that it is not appropriate for a person to be sad and to worry and be pained over his sins except for when he confesses his wrongdoings, such as during Vidoy, confessional prayer after Shemona Esrei, and during Tikkun Chatzais, the midnight prayer and the like. On the other hand, when a person prays and studies Torah, he should not place any sadness in front of his eyes, not even anxiety over sins that he committed. Rather, he should pray with great joy, 
and this is a very important matter and it is most appropriate to be careful in this regard. These are the words of the Arizal. When we're involved in a holy activity, let's not mix the klipa in there. Not even sadness over sins, because that is the klipa. Prayer, Torah study, these are holy activities. Keep them in a holy mood, and that is the mood of joy. But not during prayer and Torah study. These must be conducted with a joy. Deriving exclusively from the realm of holiness, as opposed to frivolity and the like. So when we say joy, it's important to differentiate between joy and frivolity. And the Rambam does in his laws of Shvisas Yamtif. And he explains that while a person is supposed to have meat and drink wine, but he shouldn't become indulgent in it and get drunk because this is not the simcha of a mitzvah. This is frivolity and drunkenness. And it's not possible to serve Hashem in such a state. And he quotes from the Torah, since you did not serve God your Lord out of joy and gladness of heart, he said, you have to serve Hashem with joy. And that joy shouldn't be the joy of frivolity and foolishness. It has to be a holy joy. Because when you're drunk and you're frivolous, you cannot serve Hashem. So you say, oh, joy, joy. It doesn't mean get drunk. It doesn't mean get high on drugs. That specifically is not joy. That is frivolity. That is irresponsible and foolish behavior. We're talking about holy joy. And that is the joy of a mitzvah. There's a story of Rabbi Naftali of Rapshitz that he used to watch his students when they davened and one of them broke into a dance and he said you know when I saw my shamus, when I saw Rabbi Svi the shamus breaking into that dance what a joy that was he will become into a great and mighty tree and he said you know what I saw somebody else dancing what a pity to wear out a good pair of shoes so there's different ways of dancing there's dancing that's the joy of a mitzvah that kind of dancing makes a person mighty, a great tree. Good things will come from him. Then there's the dancing that's silly and foolish and frivolous. And that is not holy joy. So when we say, holy, when we say joy, we mean the joy that's a holy joy specifically. So now we understand. Sadness is of the realm of klipa. Since we established that, why are we using it? We just explained all, I'm convinced. The altar explained all the reasons why sadness is from the klipa. So, hey, why are we getting into this meditation? And so the altar explains, Yet this is precisely the method of humbling the sitra achra through something of its own species and kind, meaning the sitra achra is most effectively attacked by utilizing the good contained within it as a weapon against itself. Okay, so what does this mean over here? We're trying to subdue the animal soul. Why? Because the animal soul is raising itself up against the divine soul, not allowing its light to shine within the heart. We need to subdue it. We can't subdue it if we don't relate to it. We need to talk to it on its own terms. What is the animal soul? The animal soul is an ego-based entity. It sees itself as an existence. If we just tell the animal soul, you know what, there's nothing else besides Hashem. Doesn't even relate to that. You might as well be speaking Chinese. If you want to give somebody directions how to get to Singapore, you have to know, are you starting off in Los Angeles? Or are you starting off in Miami? You have to meet 
the person on their own terms in order to relate to them and get them where they're going. If we want to subdue the animal soul, we have to talk to it on its own ego-based term. It sees itself as an existence. Okay, so we'll talk to you like an existence. We'll talk to you in your own language, in the Klippa language. Sadness means I'm in existence. Sadness means I'm self-absorbed. Sadness means I'm concerned about myself. Oh, great. That's exactly the language that the animal soul understands. We're speaking to it in that language, but why? In order to subdue it. We're speaking to it and saying, yes, you're in existence for yourself. I understand. You're an ego. But look how distant you are from Hashem. And that humbles the Sitra Akhra. So we're speaking to it in its own language in order to subdue it. Kimaima Razal, Mine ube iba lishte beinarga. As our sages expressed it, from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe which fells the forest. So the, the Talmud recounts how Hashem chose the Navi Ovadia to prophesy about the downfall of Edom because he himself came from the nation of Edom. He was a convert. And so commenting on this idea, the Talmud says, from the forest itself comes the handle to the axe which fells the trees. He used somebody from Edom to prophesy the downfall of Edom. Here we're using the tactics of the Sitra Akhra itself, its own language, in order to subdue the Sitra Akhra. The Midrash tells us that on the third day of creation, Tuesday, when the trees were created, you know what else was created? Iron. When the trees saw iron, this is metaphorically, they began to tremble. This is, spells out destruction. Iron means an axe. An axe means chop down trees. And the iron turned to the trees and said, Let none of you enter me, and you will not be harmed. As long as the forest will not supply the handle for the axe, the axe cannot chop down the trees. Once the forest supplies the handle, the axe, the iron, can chop down the trees. So it takes the tree itself to chop down the tree. And it's very um, enlightening in this way because actually we're talking about a tree. We were comparing the body to a tree that will not be splintered. And here we can use the tree itself to chop down, to splinter the tree. And here's another expression from the Talmud. And in a similar vein, he encountered one of his own kind. So this is a story in the Talmud about one day a snake fell into the base medrash. And an Avati, somebody who came from a certain city in Israel, killed the snake. And Rabbi Yehuda Anasi saw what happened and he said, One of his own kind killed it, which means a dangerous person killed a dangerous creature. The commentary discussed whether this was a compliment or otherwise, but anyway, here's the idea. One of its own kind did away with it. Okay. The Altarban now adds, that aside from subduing the Sitra Akhara that comes about through this, actually something great is going to happen from it. It's not just about subduing the Sitra Akhara, but a great added benefit is going to happen from this meditation. Of this sadness, resulting from contemplation of one's spiritual state, is written... 
In every sadness there will be a profit. The profit lies in the joy which follows the sadness, as will be explained later, meaning in which way the sadness itself leads to joy. Okay, so there's one benefit. We are using sadness in order to speak to the Sitra Akhara in its own language, in order to subdue this crazy ego of the animal soul that covers over the divine soul and doesn't let it to shine in the heart. It's causing an illness. It's causing Timtam Alev. The heart is numb because of the arrogance of the animal soul. So what are we going to do? We're going to deal with the animal soul on its own terms. We're going to take this sadness, which is an ego-based something, use this exercise to speak to the Sitra Akhara and subdue the Sitra Akhara. But that's not it. There's more. Something else amazing is going to happen from this exercise. Now, in chapter 26, the altar Rebbe quoted this Pasuk. He quoted this verse from Mishle because he was saying, you can't be sad. And he said, wait, I bet you're going to bring me this Pasuk from Mishle. This verse from Mishle, which says, In every sadness, there would be a prophet. I'm telling you, you can't be sad. And you're telling me, in the King Shlomo, the wisest of all men, says... In every sadness, there would be a prophet. And he said, one second, read it more carefully. He didn't say, sadness itself is the prophet. That's not what he said. Sadness itself has no merit. But from sadness, there would be a prophet. And what's that prophet? That prophet is an immense joy. This immense joy cannot be attained without being preceded first by this exercise. Now... We get it why sadness could be okay. But the Altarab is going to say now that actually the main feeling that's going to come out after this exercise is not the feeling of sadness. It's something else. It's mirirus. So it's important to, we're going to look at two different feelings. We're looking at a feeling of sadness, atzvos. We're looking at a feeling of mirirus, bitterness. Both of these are a lack of joy. We would think that they're the same, but when we see how different they express themselves, we understand they're very different. And that reminds me of a joke. Of two o'clock in the morning, the rabbi gets a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. It's the new parents. They just had a baby. It's the night before the bris, and they're in a huge fight. Come inside. The rabbi invites them in as if it was two o'clock in the afternoon. What's the problem? They're fighting over the name for the baby. So the wife says she wants to name the baby after her father. Her father was such a righteous, gentle soul. And the husband said, listen, he wants to name the baby after his father. And then the wife starts screaming, no, you know what kind of person your father was. She goes on and on. He was a cheat. He was a scoundrel. He was a gambler. He was an addict. And he says, I'm not saying it's not true. It's true. But that's his father. And he wants to name the baby after his father. So the rabbi looks at the wife and says, tell me, what was your father's name? And he said, she said, my father's name was Moshe. And so he looks at the husband and he says, tell me, what was your father's name? And he says, my father's name was Moshe. So he goes, okay, I have an idea. Name the baby Moshe. And then when the baby grows up, you'll know. If he's a tzaddik, if he's a kind and gentle soul, we'll all understand that he was named after the wife's father. And he, if he ends up as a scoundrel and a thief, you know he was named after the husband's father. So here we're looking at two different emotions that both seem to be identical because they are both a lack of joy. But no, no, no. Let's see what each of them leads to. And we'll understand that essentially they're very different. Ah. 
ve'emes ein leiv nishbar umariros hanefesh arichuka me'orpane Hashem ve'slav shusa besitra achra nekra in b'shem atzvus klal belshain hakodesh. In truth, however, the state of being contrite of heart and bitter of soul, meaning remorseful over one's remoteness from Hashem and over the fact that one's soul is clothed in the sitra achra, this state can be no. This state can by no means be described in the Holy Tongue, Hebrew, by the term atzvut. The word atzvut, meaning melancholy, stems from a word which means constricted. In this context, it refers to a numbing depression that constricts one's heart, blocking out all feeling, as the Alter Rebbe continues. The Hebrew language is the language, Lashon HaKadosh is the language that the world was created. It is so fascinating, if you delve into the root words, you understand the core essence of things. Like, why was it so magnificent that Adam Harisha and the first man was able to name the animals? And naming the animals and giving them a word, it means that he understood their essence. Every word in Lush and HaKadosh describes the essence of something. Remember when we looked at the word Ra, which is evil, it comes from the word unstable. It means there's a dissonance, there's a disconnect from the source. Let's look at the word Atzvos. Atzvos, sadness. It actually stems from a word which means compressed. In the Talmud, when they were discussing different measurements, they were talking about a hand breath. And then they say like this. Amois Seichakais and Amois Atzevais. They were contrasting two different measurements of hand breath. And one of them they were calling Amois Seichakais, which you can translate as laughing hand breaths. And what does it mean? It means expansive hand breaths. Hand breaths with the hand wide open. And then they were saying, Amois Atzevais, which is hand breaths that are compressed. The hand is closed. And you would translate that as sad hand breaths. It means compressed hand breaths. So we're looking at the word Atzvos, and it means compressed. Ki Atzvos hi shalibai mitumtam ke'aven ve'en chayas belibai. For Atzvos means that one's heart is as dull as a stone, and that there is no vitality, arousal of feeling in his heart. Aval meriros ve'lev nishbar adaraba. But bitterness, mirirus, and contrition are just the opposite. Since the very fact that one is moved to be embittered is itself a sign of life. So let's look at the two feelings of sadness and bitterness. When it comes to sadness, the heart is compressed. The heart is dull. There's lifelessness. There's no motivation. A person wants to check out. They want to go to sleep. When there's mirirus, when there's bitterness, actually, there's incredible energy. This is like frustration. This is motivation. It's like, God forbid, a person is in their house and suddenly they are beset by danger. A fire, robbers. You're not going to say they're happy. No, that's not the feeling at the moment. But they're not sad. They're not checked out. They're not like, okay, whatever. No, they're jumping. They're screaming. They're full of energy. That's Mariros. Mariros actually is energy. It's more similar to joy than it is to sadness. Both joy and bitterness have a motivation, a life energy with them. Sadness, on the other hand, is lack of motivation. Sadness is lack of energy, no vitality in the heart. So when a person goes through this med- meditation, 
they will initially come to the feeling of sadness. And sadness is from the klipa. But if they did their meditation properly, which means it's a Hashem-based meditation instead of an ego-based meditation. So let's look at the difference. What is an ego-based meditation? An ego-based meditation is a person says, I want to be perfect. I want to be the best human being that ever hit the face of this planet. Okay, well, what does a perfect human being look like? A perfect human being is somebody who has a great relationship with Hashem. Hey, I don't have a great relationship with Hashem. Poor me. I'm so sad. That looks like it's holy because he's sad that he's distant from Hashem. Actually, that's an ego-based meditation. It's not about Hashem. It's about him not being the most perfect person on planet Earth. Then there's a Hashem-based meditation, and that leads to sadness too. And that is recognizing the goodness, the wondrousness, the perfectness of the divine. And suddenly realizing how far away the person is. That brings sadness too. But it's not ego-based. It's Hashem-based. So that meditation produces sadness. But because it was a proper meditation, sadness is the first feeling. It's the feeling that attacks the sitra'achar, the animal soul, on its own terms and subdues it. But immediately it transforms and gives way to another feeling. And that is a holy feeling. And that is the feeling of miriros, bitterness. Rak shehi chayos mibchinas givurais kedaishais, vahasimcha mibchinas chasadim. Except that its vitality derives from the holy attributes of severity, givurot. And it therefore expresses itself as bitterness, whereas joy derives from the holy attributes of kindness, chasadim. So miriros is a holy feeling. It's a feeling of energy, but it doesn't derive from chasad. The energetic feeling that derives from chesed is a feeling of joy. The energetic feeling that derives from givura is the feeling of bitterness. For the heart contains both these attributes, kindness and severity. The heart has two expressions of energy. Joy is the expression of chesed. Bitterness is the expression of givura. Givura too is energy. Sadness is a person is stuck in themselves. But Mariris is not that. Mariris is motivated. I want to get out of myself. Sadness is when a person feels ego-based. They feel like, oh, it's not working out. Forget it. I don't want to move. Mariris is when a person says, I want to get out of here. Yes, they're aware of their, deep, their faults. Yes, they're aware of the things that keep them back. But that's not where they're stuck at. It's not depleting their energy, it's enforcing their energy. The fact that they're so low is motivating them. That's what Mariris looks like. If a person is in a state of ego and they realize they're so low, they're like, okay, forget about it. And if a person is in a state of holiness and they realize they're so low, no, they're motivated. Get me out of here. It's a totally different feeling. So let's look at these two different energies, the holy Gevura and the holy chaset. Look at two different people who are just go-getters. They're always on the go, moving and making things happen. One person is a Gevura person. No nonsense, a drill sergeant. Doesn't have time for laughter and silly things. No nonsense, just getting things going. Full of energy. That's a Gevura kind of person. The main soul faculty in him, what shines, is Gevura. Let's look at a Chesed-based person. He's full of energy too. He's always making things happen, but he's seeing the positivity in everything. So optimistic, making things happen and seeing the good and the light in every situation. 
both of these people are very energetic, but their soul powers, their soul characteristics are very different. The Gavur person is very energetic, but they're all about no-nonsense. The Chassid person is very energetic, and he's all about seeing the good, the optimism and everything. So both of these are sources of energy. Miriris comes, is the energy that comes from Gavura. Now, we have to understand that for the most part, we are not supposed to be in the mode of Gavura. Even holy Gavura is not the place to be. For the most part, we are supposed to be in the mode of Chesed, of joy. Gavura could be dangerous because it's all about concealment. It's all about constriction and bitterness has some type of relation to sadness, even though it's not sadness because sadness is of the klipa. The great Reb Aaron of Karlin said that essentially Miriros at the end of the day is still related to Atzvah's sadness. It's too close to the klipa for us to be in this space all the time. But if we are in this mode, and sometimes we need to be, the altar is going to explain why, then we are going to employ this method. At times, one must arouse the holy attributes of severity, givurot. So again, it's le'itim, at times. The Friyadika Rebbe, the previous Rebbe in a talk that he gave in 1940, explained that Miriros bitterness is a powerful drug. A powerful drug can do very good. A powerful drug can heal. However, if a person takes too much of it, and if a person takes it constantly, of course, that's very dangerous. It could have very negative side effects. So this has to be used appropriately. And sometimes a person is using the givurot in order to arouse the holy attributes of givura. Why? Kidei lahamtik hadidim shehem bechinas nefesh habahamis v'yetzer hara. The reason why a person would want to arouse the holy Gavuras is in order to temper, to sweeten the stern judgments, which in this context denote the animal soul and the evil inclination. Whenever it, the latter, dominates a man, God forbid. So before we were talking about Miriros, as it is within the person. Bitterness within a person, we said, the heart is comprised of both of them. And when a person employs Miriris, when they use this exercise of bitterness, they are arousing the gavura of their own divine soul down here below. But as we learn in the Zohar, that an arousal from below creates a corresponding arousal from above. So by having this Miriris using the gavura of their divine soul, they now elicit a response from the gavura above in the supernal realms. Why are they doing this? For stern judgments, meaning restraints on one's spiritual well-being, can only be sweetened by means of their source. This is a very, very powerful idea. Okay, I'm going to read what they have over here and then we're going to go into this a little more deeply. All evil is simply a degenerate form of the attribute of severity, givurot, that derives from the realm of holiness. Myriad contractions, symptomim, and a sense of this attribute transform it to evil, the evil of klipa, 
Naturally, this includes also the sitra akhara of one's animal soul and his evil impulse. In order to elevate or sweeten evil, to return evil to the realm of holiness, it is necessary to bring its source to bear on it. In terms of one's divine service, this means crushing one's evil impulse by mirirus, bitter remorse, which derives its vitality from the holy attribute of severity, the source of the evil impulse. We have to remember that the source of life for everything is always holiness. Every single thing in this world stems, derives its energy, is brought to life from holiness. Let's look at the Satan and the Yetzir Hara, how they are described in the Talmud. The Talmud describes them in very contradictory ways. On one hand, the Talmud tells us that the Satan has its intentions, Satan's intentions are for the sake of heaven. On the other hand, the Talmud tells us that the Satan, and these are the words it uses, He placed his eyes on the first temple and destroyed it. What does it mean he placed his eyes? He was jealous. He was jealous of the first temple, and so he enticed the people to sin, and in this way, the temple was destroyed. And the sages tell us that he will be punished for it. So we have these different opinions on the Satan, on the evil, on the enticer, on the Yetzirahara. We also learned from the Zohar that at the end of the day, our Yetzirahara wants for the good of the person. Our animal soul wants for the good of the person. It's like the harlot that was hired by the king to test the character of his only son. She doesn't want him to fall. She wants him to resist her. And in this way, it's going to prove how great he is and his strength is going to become even greater. So does the Satan, does the evil inclination, does the animal soul have good in mind or does it have bad in mind? It depends where we're looking at it from. Givura, the holy Givura, is about symptom, concealment. Hiding the divine. That's what severity is. It's hiding the divine. But ultimately, the holy Gevura is for a holy purpose. What is the holy purpose? That the human being should be able to resist. The human being should see past the concealment. And in this way, the concealment actually brings a greater manifestation, a greater revelation of the divine. So this seeming concealment is actually for a greater revelation. However, all of this is only about the Gevura as it is in its supernal source. When we get up to its source, there it is holy. There its intentions are good. There its intention is truly so that there should be a greater manifestation of the divine. However, and the Alter points this out in a Hasidic discourse in Lakute Taira, once it has come, devolved through the order, chain-like descent of the order of the worlds, now it's utterly evil. Now it really wants bad. Hasidim gives an example of Let's say this harlot that the king hires, she hires another harlot, who in turn hires another harlot, who in turn hires another harlot. By the time it comes to the harlot who was actually going to entice the prince, she doesn't know anything about the king. She doesn't know anything about his plan. She really just wants to get him to fall. So as the Gevura has devolved and come down here, it has become utterly evil. So we're in a bind. We're stuck by this animal soul who's trying to conceal the divine soul from us. So how are we going to get out of this situation? We're going to get to its source. We're going to remember where it came from. 
We're going to get its holy source to bear down on it and to sweeten it. One example I heard from this is from Rav Chaim Shalom Deitch. I heard his shear from Israel. And he was saying it's like a story of a woman who sends her husband to go shopping and he comes home with everything besides whatever was on her shopping list. So now she's in a really bad mood. So she starts yelling. Wait, why are you yelling? Stop for a minute and think. Why did you send your husband shopping? You sent your husband shopping because you wanted him to buy food. Why did you want him to buy food? You sent him to buy food so you could make dinner. Why did you want to make dinner? So that the ambience in the house could be peaceful and serene. And now you're yelling. You're defeating your own purpose. But when you stop and you remember why you were doing all these activities, you go up to the source, then you can remedy the bad behavior. Or think about parents who treat their kids in a way that's rude, who are yelling at their kids and being sharp and impatient with them. Why are they doing that? Well, they wanted their kids to get better grades. They wanted their kids to be safe and out of danger. Yes, but the way they're expressing that doesn't come out as the love that it was meant to be. It was meant to be love. You wanted your kid to do the best. You wanted your kid to stay out of danger's way. But as it came to be manifest, it no longer looks like that. In order to modify the behavior, you have to go up to its source. It's dealing with the problem at its root. So what are we doing here? When we use Marirus, when we exercise this bitterness, we draw out the Gevura in our divine soul. What does this do? It elicits a response from above. The response above bears down on the Gevura below. What's the Gevura below? It's the Yetzer Hara. It's the animal soul as it comes to hide the divine soul. One second. Remember why you're here. Yes, you're hiding the divine soul. Yes, you're trying to give us choices, but it's because you want to manifest the divine soul. And in this way, we sweeten the animal soul at its source. And this is very different from another method. And this is another method too that's given in mystical teachings, and that is overwhelming the evil by good. A person finds themselves in a spiritually starry state. So what do they do? They engage in abundant acts of kindness. They engage in abundant Torah study and prayer. They bring on all the goodness. And in this way, they minimize the evil. It's like we have a principle in halacha. Let's say you have a tiny drop of non-kosher milk. And it falls into a pot of kosher milk. If there were 60 times the volume of the non-kosher milk in the kosher milk, it's called butl, it becomes canceled, and all the milk is kosher. However, it doesn't essentially transform that one drop of milk. Let's say you have bitter water and you wanna make it sweet. So you pour in a whole bunch of sweet water. Now the water tastes sweet. Now the bitter water has been canceled out. It no longer has an effect, no power, no influence. But if you were able to isolate the droplets of water the bitter water remains bitter water, and the sweet water remains sweet water. Here, it's a totally different method. It's like the story in the Torah where the Jewish people came to Mara, and the water was bitter, and they, they complained to Moshe, and Hashem showed him a tree, and Hashem said, throw the wood into the water. And the Midrash says that the tree that Hashem showed Moshe was a bitter tree. He threw a bitter tree into bitter water, and the water itself became sweet. And that's the exercise over here. It's using the bitterness to cancel out the bitterness. It's like, it's like a negative times a negative makes a positive. 
that's what's going on over here. It's actually taking the bitterness itself to transform the bitterness and transform it into sweetness. Now, we did learn earlier in chapter 10 that most people do not have the capability of utterly transforming their animal soul. Most of us, and we'll review this in this chapter as well, for all of our lives are going to have to struggle with the animal soul. Only a tzaddik has the capability of actually transforming his animal soul to become another force for good. But still, even those of us who cannot totally transform our animal soul can, in increments, level by level, sweeten it through this exercise of mirirus, bitterness. So I'm going to sum up where we got until now and open up for question and discussion. So we started off by saying, one second, we're going to do these meditations of chapters 29 and 30. We're going to come to a bad space. We're going to come to depression. How is that okay? It's not okay. And the author says, you're right. Sadness comes from the klipa. And we explain why sadness comes from the klipa because it's an ego-based feeling. And when we talk about Hashem's place, Hashem's place is full of gladness and joy. The divine presence doesn't rest on someone except when he's in a state of joy. Yet, nevertheless, we are employing this method of sadness in order to deal with the Sitra Akhra on its own terms. As the expression goes, from the forest itself comes the handle to the axe, which fells the tree. So we're using sadness in order to speak to the animal soul and subdue it. By subduing it, we're turning it into a vessel to accept the holy message. The holy exercise of mirirus, bitterness. Bitterness is not the same as atzvus, as sadness. Sadness is about being cramped and compressed, lifeless. Bitterness is motivation, it's frustration, it's get me out of here. Bitterness is a holy feeling. It comes from the holy gevura in our divine soul. And this in turn elicits a divine response. It wakes up draws down Givora from above in the supernal source, and that's actually the source of the animal soul and the Yetzirahara. Down here, they're bad, but in their source, the concealment is for the good, to bring greater manifestation. And when we do that, we're able to transform the animal soul itself into something that is sweet. So that's where we got up until now, and I'm opening up for questions and discussion. Remember that you're on mute, so if you want to say something, please unmute yourself. Thank you. I just wanted to thank you so much for for this talk and to tell you that if only I had uh, had access to this when I was a teenager growing up and had all of these feelings, you know, the sadness and just growing up and, 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 and trying to understand who I was, that it would have been so helpful and I hope that this is something that you can teach to, you know, young, young women. As, and young guys. Right, so it's out so there. It's to just, it yeah. helps you understand. And, and it's a method. It's a, you, you give us a technique, a it's meditation. unbelievable. Tanya is life-changing. I, I see wisdom sparkling from Hani's eyes right now, and I feel like she has something to share. <laughs> well, Joni just left, but I was just thinking, well, like Hashem wants us to go through our teenagehood and our... We're not supposed to have the wisdom, even just like speaking about Kabbalah, it says you're not supposed to learn until you're 40 and you have to be very, very good in so many different areas of Torah. So, you know, we're supposed to be humbled by life. And I think we need that ego. We start off with that ego and then 
we can relate so much better to others. If we, if we were all these masters of ourselves at such a young age, we wouldn't be. We would look down upon any teenager who's struggling or any young person like this. We we can relate. We say, you know, I used to be you, and hopefully to be able to give them some advice. But so true. It's so true. Thank you, Rochen.